Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Biomass. We're in episode 130. We've got uh, the usual gang here with uh, a couple of new people. So we got Lether coming back from last week, kind of just to continue our discussion about asymmetrical gameplay. Today we're going to be covering maps and game mode designs. So we'll probably cover that as kind of the main topic, but we do have quite a bit of gaming news we're going to cover first. So let's get started with some introductions. We'll move on to that and then on to the main topic. So starting at the top of the list with Soraya Zell. I'm Zell. And he's determined to make his introduction as lackluster as possible every single week and, and totally throw off the rhythm. So uh, screw you, Zell. <laughs> All right, Bate, Thank you're you. up, man. Hey, everybody. What's up? I'm Bate, and I am chilling here with some uh, delicious chips and salsa. Are you painting some happy little clouds? No, he paints I angry just, little I, trees. I, I, I just angry love to paint me some, some angry little trees, Pokey. It, we're going to actually have to take the picture that Bate took of his Halloween costume and update the <laughs> datesforbait.com uh, profile picture so it's more accurate. No. So everyone can get a proper... So you should have known better to sending us a picture because you knew that was going to end up on there. <laughs> oh, shit. I, it, it's, I it's, saved that shit. So don't, don't bother taking it down. I have it on my hard drive. It's oh, over, man. <laughs> it's it's uh, it, he did uh, he did Bob Ross, but he looks really angry in the picture. <laughs> Dude, a lot of people actually told me that. And I'm like, I don't know how to like make myself look happy. I just don't have that demeanor that Bob Ross had, you know. Well, if Bob Ross played Dust as long as you did, he'd be pissed off. Yeah, so I, I understand. <laughs> All right, um, and Lether introductions, man. Uh, hey guys, I'm I'm Leather. Uh, I don't know, like like last week, I'm completely bereft of anything interesting gaming wise since since Dust shut down so long ago. I'm a PhD student, so you can imagine me eating ramen noodles or something. Always fun. And Libby's running a little late, so she may uh, hop in uh, a little into the show, but we'll have to see on that. But regardless, I am Pokey Draven. I obviously host the show here. Um, we write for the blog. When we do write for the blog, I, I do that sometimes, but not lately. But uh, yeah, I want to thank everyone for joining us today, either through the stream on Twitch or our website or catching us on the recording on the website or iTunes. So that being said, let's move into some of the news we've got. So. E-Valkyrie is losing its, well, it's giving up its exclusivity contract with uh, Oculus Rift. So coming out this November, uh, E-Valkyrie will be available on the HTC Vive. And there's no actual release date specifically, but it is going to be November uh, of this year. So obviously the next three weeks or so, you should be able to get Valkyrie on the Vive. And this is this is um, pretty exciting to me because I know CCP, you know, has always done these exclusivity agreements. Gunjack 1 is, is Gear VR and... Uh, Gunjack 2 is supposed to be for the Daydream, but whenever these have expired, they've gone ahead and supported like every VR platform they can. Um, so my hope is that this means that maybe when Microsoft's holographic thing comes out, maybe they'll support that too. Um, and, and, and just, I, I mean, an Oculus is not the VR headset that I want to own. Um, it's, it's not even in the top three. So being able to potentially play this if I get something else is kind of, kind of awesome. And it makes sense that they're going to want to probably push this to as many platforms as possible because, you know, the future is very uncertain on what's going to win the hardware war for, you know, the next generation of headsets. So, you know, CCP is probably doing well in, in producing a, a pretty solid game and, and getting it out there for the largest market possible because that's going to, you know, propel their, their standing in, in the VR market forward, but also reach the largest number of consumers. And, you know, people can kind of cross compare and, and see what they like to play it on and then you know moving forward they're going to look 
towards CCP games for you know the next VR game whenever the next gen uh, headset comes out. Hey, is the Vive the the eight hundred dollar one or is that the Oculus? That's the eight hundred dollar one. Uh, okay. But it does come with the hand controllers and like the room sensors. So I think if you buy oh, the hand controllers that's... for the Oculus, it's basically the same yeah. price. Yeah, the, yeah. The, you so, spend two hundred bucks yeah. on the fancy Oculus controllers. So yeah, it's a wash. Except for the fact honestly, that Vive is allegedly better. It, it is, is a it better though? piece of hardware. See, it yeah, no, it, okay. it does have better specs okay. than the the Oculus. And and if you know the the controllers were cheaper for the Oculus, I go, oh, okay, so that's still you know you can get a cheaper option. But yeah, like Excel said, they're like two hundred bucks. So if you're gonna spend the eight hundred to get the full experience, you should probably get the Vive, um, just because it has you know a lot more features and it, it looks a lot better um, overall. I'm still interested. I guess I've seen people streaming VR stuff. And quite a lot of it now seems to require like a whole room to like maneuver in, which is interesting. It's not totally unexpected. Yeah, that's that's kind of the vibe thing is the room scale VR. And that's one of the features I mentioned is that they have the sensors that you put in the room and it kind of creates a, a digital barrier that you can see in the game. So, you know, not to run into a wall because you can kind of see the wall in the room, so to speak. Uh, which which is kind of the direction it needs to go. I and mean, a lot of the other sets, you know, are much more focused on a, a sitting experience just because it's it's much simpler. But, you know, the, the Vive is really pushing towards having that, that whole room full motion experience, which I think is probably where they're going to want to go eventually because you are fairly limited in some of the motion games you can do from just sitting down. It is a pain in the butt to arrange that, though. I've, I've kind of thought about it for my house, like what I would do if I got a VR headset. And I don't know. I might have to set it up in the kitchen. I mean, there's not a lot of space where I have, like, you know, even, you know, eight by eight feet of, of just, like, empty room. And that's that's a really, really tough commitment. Well, and you still have to be tethered, right? Well, my computer is, like, a foot outside of my kitchen, so using my kitchen for VR wouldn't be too difficult. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's it's an interesting point. You almost sort of wonder what their demographic layout is of people who are nerdy enough to want to get into VR and, like, what? Living space arrangements. They no, dude, well, they're, they're parents, to get rid parents' of basements are thing. actually parents' basements are usually pretty roomy. I I mean I would have had more space to work with if I space still lived in my parents' basement. Ah, uh, basements. I grew up in Florida. We don't really have those here. Same. We have a bonus room though. Those are fun. Get that trade off. But uh, yeah, no, I, I think that maybe what they're going for, you know, trying to trying to market to those people who you know either. Uh, you know, have this empty room that they use as their quote-unquote gaming room or whatever. So, I don't know. I'm surprised we haven't seen more, like, um, studios pop up in storefronts. I mean, we have so many um, so many storefronts that are, are just up for sale, or, you know, rent or sale or whatever around here. I'm surprised you don't see more, like, VR gaming studios open up where you can go and, and play VR for a while. An interesting thought. It might be a bit new, I I wonder if people are, I mean, it, it would be within line of the kind of, uh... It's like laser tag, but uh, better. Yeah, and wasn't there a group that actually, like, ha- has a warehouse and a custom yeah. setup with... Yeah, there uh, is. Um, I forget what it's called. It's, um, I don't remember. Yeah, you could probably look it up, though. They stick a computer in a backpack, right? Yeah, there's actually, um, almost all the big gaming computer manufacturers have come out with, uh, VR backpack designs lately. Um, I know Acer or Asus has one, um, like Zotac, I forget what that company's called, Zotac, I think, and they they just announced one, um, and and basically they just take a little, a a computer, they shove it in a backpack form factor, put all the ports right up on top, um, 
and uh you know you get a big battery pack to wear around your belt that that you know gives you a an hour or something stupid <laughs> and yeah. this is for uh, for just VR? so that you can do untethered VR, you you just wear the gaming computer oh. on your back. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, and then let me lay the scenario right. I'm in a warehouse, okay, with my VR backpack and my my VR goggles. I'm running around with twenty other people doing what? Um. Well, what they were doing is they, you know, you could do all sorts of like first person shooters or something because your ability to move around the space <laughs> is preserved. Um. And what what they actually have done is they've done some neat plays with things. It's like if you want to make like a cliff face, all you need is the floor to drop like a foot. Because if you re- if you put your foot over that space, you're gonna you're gonna feel nothing there. You're gonna be like, that's a cliff, and you're gonna see the cliff in the VR world. It's really just oh. a foot drop, and that's all so, they need to do. What's stopping me from running into walls or other people? Well, with they my map big VR they map on? everything in the game to actual space that in this warehouse. So. They can even use a couple little tricks. Like they were showing, um, one of the things they can do is they can make a, um, they can either make curved or straight hallways that you view as the other, because you you can actually they can actually kind of trick your mind into into going you know down a curved walkway, even though it's really straight or vice versa. Yeah, I mean, and then uh, you you asked about walls. I guess the only wall actual walls in the space are the exterior ones. So since they have uh, specialized in uh, kind of mappings, they can actually put boundaries at the physical walls. Now, what's interesting yeah. is apparently in the game space, they have additional walls, of course, that, that don't exist, right? In re- real life. And people are, are apparently incredibly, um, maybe unsurprisingly, but uh, observe the reality of these things in the game space all, very consistently. I just want to watch a bunch of people go to one of these places and run around and do this. Just a bunch of people with gigantic headsets standing still like they're behind, like, you know, acting like they're behind the wall or whatever. And like, I don't know, I just think it'd be really fun. <laughs> it'd probably be pretty funny. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. laser tag's pretty funny. If you think about like watching laser tag from overhead or something like that. <laughs> I, I used to play laser tag. It was fun. Um, then, then everyone else decided paintball was fun. And I, I really don't like welts on my, on my skin. So I kind of, you know, passed on that. Paintball really is fun, though. It hurts. So, I'm a, I'm a gaming nerd. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. A, I don't want. The, I don't want to play games that hurt, man. Out, outside is hard and scary, so we're just gonna <laughs> keep it with a VR headset. <laughs> um, it looks like Livy has popped in here. Do you want to give your introduction real quick, Livy? I have no introduction. Am I here? Can you hear me? You can are you here. We can ah! hear you. You're good. That's my intro. What's up, y'all? It was better it, than Zell. It was better than Zell. Which is really a low bar, but I guess you got over <laughs> that one, so. <laughs> Alright, so, um, moving along, it looks like they a little more details came out for what's going on with the new Deadpool movie. And it seems that, and Zell can probably uh, elaborate on this a bit, but the, the director that chose to leave effectively wanted to kind of push the project in the direction of having a, a, a bigger budget sort of... Um, you know, standard movie superhero budget uh, production, but uh, Ronald Reynolds wanted to kind of keep it with the, you know, shoestring, low-budget film that the first Deadpool was, and and a lot of that made it really, you know, um, successful. So, I mean, that's that that kind of makes sense, because I can see that the, the, the appeal of having, hey, I actually can, like, do things now and have more than two X-Men uh, <laughs> would be good, but at the same time, you know, I think a lot of the reason why the first movie was so successful is that they 
were extremely efficient with how they they spent their money and they did everything so well. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of this is this is kind of a comforting thing to me to hear is the reason he left. Um, because I I really want Deadpool two to have what Deadpool one has. I mean, I enjoy the the you know the big main franchise movies. Um, I I did actually see Doctor Strange um last night. And it was good. I enjoyed it. It was a it was a good movie, um, but Deadpool is something different, and it's it's good in a different way, and it needs to stay that way. Oh, I forgot Doctor Strange came out. Was that good, though? It was. It was very good. <laughs> I, I I will tell you that that I I'm sure that everyone in their visual effects department was given a box of kaleidoscopes, and that they were told whenever they didn't know what to do to grab a kaleidoscope and look at it. <laughs> That's what I that, heard. That is what they did. Like there, there are just so many scenes in that movie that you're just like, "That's a kaleidoscope." <laughs> it's like that had to be their primary like inspiration for for their, the entire studio's visual effects. A kaleidoscope and a copy of Inception. You mean? <laughs> well, that too. I mean, that's that's not a bad thing. I mean, Inception had great visuals. I mean, that was probably you know one of the best parts of that film. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear. I heard that that the one major complaint is that it felt a little. Uh, too similar to the other hero origin stories that the, the way it was you mean, structured. Was, you mean was, how you know. Ant Man was basically Iron Man, and how Doctor Strange is also basically Iron Man? Yeah, it's the yes. thing, that's it's basically I the mean, same thing. I mean, the I, thing is, which is fine. That, that formula has worked for Marvel. This is not going to be the last time you see it. Um, and you know, you know what you're going for when you go see a, a big budget Marvel movie. You know what you're going for. You can't complain about that. You get so, that. That's what you get. But it's good. It was enjoyable. You know. You know. Well, and, and you raise a good point with that. That you do know what you're going to get with a big budget movie, which is probably where a lot of the sphere comes for Deadpool. Is that they don't want it to slip in that direction because it, it was so different and it was successful because it was different. So yeah, exactly. Uh, so was there like a dojo scene in this movie? Like Doctor? So I ask because actually they filmed a part of this at my college. Um, in Oxford over um, over last uh, Christmas break, I think. So I wasn't in town, but some people caught Benedict Cumberbatch there and stuff like that. Oxford um, has a dojo? No, they set up... So it was actually in the chapel. Um, oh. And I, I'm led to understand from a trailer that they, uh, you know, they use the interior space as, like, a dojo for the movie or something like that. Huh. I, I guess I could see that. I, I I'd have to see it's the hard space you were talking about to visualize yeah, me, that. But I wish I um, remembered the trailer. I, I, but yeah, it's. I mean, yeah, they have they have a lot of locations though. They had they had obviously a lot of stuff that they went overseas to film for. Um, uh, Nepal, I think, is where where a lot of the movie takes place. Um, well, that's good. We'll we'll have to take probably follow up on that. I need to go see it still, but we'll we'll probably do a proper review. Um, yeah, we we can't go, yeah, we can't go really far into it. Really far into on opening weekend, yeah. weekend. It it, it looks good though. I I do want to see it, so we'll, I'm looking forward to that one. Okay, so BlizzCon was this weekend, and uh, Zell is probably hopping up and down in his seat in excitement. So I'm going to kind of let him take the reins on this one and talk about all that was discussed at BlizzCon. But uh, one thing that was was pretty big and kind of been expected for quite a while is the introduction of a new character for Overwatch. So do you want to kind of talk about Overwatch and, and the new character and all that, Zell? Well, first and foremost, I have to state that last week I told everyone that I was quitting Overwatch because of the uh, rampant hero stacking and there's actually there's somebody's like using some sort of power tool on i think 
below or above me. It's very distracting. Um, but uh, I said that I was done with Overwatch because of hero stacking in, in quick play, which is the casual gameplay mode. And they'd already removed it from competitive play. Well, this weekend, Blizzard did announce that they are removing hero stacking from quick play and that they will... Um, they will be having like a little arcade mode for people with no who want to do like stupid stuff like six of one hero on a team um, that they're going to call no limits. But the actual main quick play mode is getting rid of the broken mechanics that I've been complaining about and have been making the game unpleasant for me. So I'm back. I am Blizzard back. Blizzard loves you and they will listen oh, to you specifically. They they have they have won me back. Um I I am back um, in the I, Blizzard camp and waving my my little blue Blizzard flag and and everything. Um and uh so I'm I'm thrilled. I'm enjoying all of the butt hurting from the uh, hero stacking fans on the forums who are now crying about it endlessly. Um their tears are are delicious. Um I I truly enjoy them. Um so that's that's the big thing is um they're doing that they're they're as i said they're coming up with this kind of arcade mode to replace brawl because brawl was kind of like they do like a uh you know rule set of the week for brawl mode and it was kind of lackluster in most cases they had some really awesome event ones like for um the olympic games and then for uh the halloween event but a lot of their weekly ones they would just kind of say like well you know what this match you can only play female characters or you know this week this this you can only use tanks or something like that it was it was very generic most of the time so they're gonna mix it up they're gonna have a couple different things in there um the no limits room is part of it which i will never take part in ever um but uh you know they're they're fixing the main thing so i'm i'm thrilled um and then in the worst kept secret or longest running uh, ARG game ever, um, they have finally announced Sombra, who is um, a, uh, a hacker type person um, in and who is a kind of in the villainous side of the uh, Overwatch character set. Um, and uh, she has a couple neat abilities. Um, she has a cloaked ability, which is I, I'm pretty sure a complete first for um, Overwatch to have a stealth character. Um, she has a teleport where she can kind of place a, a beacon to teleport back to later. Um, and she has this neat hacking ability where she can, um, hack enemy turrets or she can actually, she can hack like the health, um, dr the health spawns so that the enemy team can't use them. Um, there's a couple of neat tricks like that she can do. Um, her, her ultimate is like this, a, a EMP that kind of wipes out some of the other characters abilities. Um, so, you know, if somebody drops like the big, uh, you know, a big she uh, Lucio shield to everybody in the area, she can basically nullify it out and then they can, you know, wipe everybody up. Um, so there's uh, there's some cool stuff there for her. They've got her. Uh, uh, they they did a little animated short with her to introduce her. Um, she basically backstabs her own team on that, which is fun. Um, they also have a little video with an origin story and a video of gameplay footage for that. Um I don't know when they said this is coming out, but when when all of this next patch drops, I will be uh, very excited to go back to Overwatch. Um, so that's my Overwatch stuff. Yeah, that, that short was actually pretty cool. They, Blizzard, as usual, knows how to put together a really solid uh, trailer for pretty much anything. So, I mean, the, the, the Overwatch stuff is all very fantastic, and it, it does give a pretty good you know feel for the character and the personality they're going to have and, and their backstory and kind of how you can expect them to, to interact with their characters in the game. So I, I was pretty impressed, as, as I always am, with the cinematics that Blizzard puts out. 
So why are the hero stacking people butthurt if they're going to get their own special room? Because so they, can't they can molest everyone else. It's they like can molest people, they can molest You have to bear in mind that uh, hero okay. stacking is a method of trolling. People who do it have no redeemable game quality for doing it except to ruin other people's day. And oh, that, right. that has been taken away from them because now the only people who can who they will go up against are other people who join the room specifically for hero stacking, which is other people who actually want to play that way. And that is something they don't want to have to deal with. They want to ruin the day for everybody else. It's no it's it's like if you it's like the games that um handle cheaters by by pairing them with other cheaters only in matchmaking. <laughs> it's no fun because now you're just competing who has the best cheats. It's not, you don't get to ruin other people's gameplay, and that's okay with me. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's what they're upset about. Really, you know, if if everything was all legit about what they were doing, they, they should have no complaints, because it's really just that the old quick play has moved to this no limits mode, and there's now a no hero stacking mode that we're calling what the old mode used to be called. So, But that's what it comes down to, is they, they can't ruin the game for everybody else, and that's why they were there. Um, yep, yep. Um, so, do you want to tell us a bit about what's going on with Heroes of the Storm, then? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, then they went on to um, the Heroes of the Storm news. They introduced uh, that the next two heroes coming out are Varian Rin and uh, Ragnaros. Um, Varian, they... Um, spoiler, kind of. Um, they just killed him off in, in World of Warcraft, and everyone was really sad about it. So, now they're like, well, you can have him in this other game instead. Um, which I thought was kind of funny. Um but, uh, and then Ragnaros is actually one of the bosses from the original World of Warcraft, one of the big raids in the in the very early history of World of Warcraft. And uh, him coming in as a playable character is kind of kind of interesting because he's gigantic. Um, and he has some really crazy abilities um from the looks of it, like the ability to literally like become a fort <laughs> as a way to help defend a fort. He can just like become the fort. um. It, it it looks a little crazy um, and a l- little bit of fun. And then they're doing kind of their uh, Heroes of the Storm is also getting like their first attack defend mode, um, which is interesting because, you know, Heroes of the Storm as traditional MOBA like League of Legends. Basically, every single map is um, symmetrical. So for them to have a, like a straight up attacker defender game mode is, is kind of new for the genre for them. Um and I guess Varian's kind of new too because he's uh I think he's like dual um a dual class hero that can basically hero either can either be a either. tank or a damage character. So, so. Mm-hmm. that was interesting. I saw that. He's got an, like an entirely different skill set depending on what he switches to. Yeah, and and that's that's something we've seen before from a few other games, I think, but it's kind of new for them. Yeah, and it's interesting. I didn't know that they were doing the whole attack defense. We'll have to kind of touch on that again when we get to our main topic at the the latter half of the show here. So, uh, moving along though, it looks like there's also again coming from Blizzard uh, a new update in the works for Diablo three, and this is going to be a, a paid update. But it looks like they are going to be adding the classic necromancer class from Diablo two, and they're going to bring that into Diablo three, which is kind of interesting because when Diablo three was released, they, they kind of talked about necromancer and they weren't going to do it because they felt they would have too much overlap with the witch doctor class, which was similar in many ways where he would summon, uh, you know, zombie dogs and gargantuans. And it, it, felt a lot like it was kind of a spiritual successor to the necromancer which makes this one uh kind of an interesting move I'm, I'm very surprised they're doing it but it's coming with corpse explosion and anyone who's ever played diablo 2 knows that 
Corpse Explosion is awesome, where you basically turn any body on the screen into a bomb, uh, which then explodes chunks everywhere, and it's you know it, it it's it's very bloody and gory, but it it, it fits the character, so it, it's a fun one. But again, I'm I'm kind of surprised that they're they're doing this, but it's it should be interesting. They seem pretty confident they can make it different enough from the the Witch Doctor to to make it you know something you'd actually want to play as um, instead of you know. Yeah, the other thing that I heard that they're working on, um, and I, I don't have a video link for this, which is mostly why I skipped making it actually in the notes. Um, but I heard that they're kind of like remaking Diablo one in Diablo in Diablo three's engine or something like that too. Oh, cool. Yes, I did hear that. This was pretty neat. Um, and I'm not sure if that's um, the same expansion they're talking about because I know that there's again talks of, of another expansion or if that is indeed the same thing. Yeah, I don't know. We do, we don't really do our research for the show, so you know. <laughs> well, the, 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 to be fair, they they've even said that a lot of this is very early in in production, and while they showed off some screenshots and some little uh, video clips, it, it's it's not something that they're they're talking about in depth. So you know, again, it's this is more of a a preliminary announcement of what's going on. There's no release dates or prices or anything like that going on for Diablo three, unfortunately, at this time. And then uh, just to kind of wrap up the BlizzCon news, um, Hearthstone has a new expansion coming called The Mean Streets of Gadgetzan, um, which will almost certainly involve many many goblins and much hijinks, um, because anytime they start talking about goblins, you know you're going to get funny stuff out of Blizzard. Um, and then World of Warcraft announced that their 7.2 patch for uh, Legion is going to be um, the Tomb of Sargeras raid, and they will finish the uh, epic quest chain to uh, enable flying in the new zones. And I still haven't actually played Legion, even though I subscribed to it, so I'll get around to it eventually. Fantastic, yeah. So, I mean, lots of stuff coming out of BlizzCon this week. Um, tons of trailers you can dig into, uh, especially the Overwatch stuff. There's just a, a lot of stuff you can take a look at. It's it's all, you know, very very cool, and if you're into Blizzard games, it's certainly worth your time. So All of it will uh, be in the show along, notes. All of it will be in the yes, show notes. Check out the show notes, notes on our site. Um, we'll have links to all of the videos we talk about, and, uh, you know, probably a couple more just for fun. Mm-hmm. And moving along, so... Uh, Zell finally fixed his computer and was able to give both Titanfall 2 and the new Modern Warfare um, Call of Duty, or sorry, Call of Duty Infinite Warfare, Warfare games Infinite. a shot. There you go. Uh, so do you want to kind of give us your thoughts on that and your, your feel for, for how it's played out and, and you know, some, some good and bad elements that you uh, experienced while giving him a shot? Yeah, so first of all, I want to I wanna just defend my PC Master Race title here for a moment, is... All I had to do to fix this was the, the the hard drive that I have my games installed on. I had to move which bay I put it into my computer because um, I, I wired the the second set of bays with different different connectors than the the first set, and the second set really wasn't up to the task. I get like triple the drive performance now. Um, but it was easy once I figured out what was going on. But uh, so yeah, so Titanfall Two um, is. Okay, I, I played a little bit of it. I didn't play a ton. Um, I, I'm not super fond of, of the differences in it, um, but it, it's, you know, it's Titanfall. Um, and uh, Call of Duty Infinite Warfare, I've also played for just a few minutes. And they the, my first inclination of Infinite Warfare is that it, they basically took all of the things that made Titanfall Titanfall and put them in, in Call of Duty, except there are no Titans. <laughs> so... You know, I, I haven't played Call of Duty since Modern Warfare 3, so, um, you know, they've had a couple games in there, um, but first, in, in the in the meantime, and uh, that that was the biggest difference, is all the wall running and, and double jumping and everything that you're used to in Titanfall, 
um, is in Call of Duty, and they have um, new spacey maps that you kind of... Some of the maps that you're in, you actually have to wall jump or you die, because they're, they're actually, like, spaces where there's a pit of death under you, and the only way around this corner is to wall jump, so... Um, you you learn to wall run really fast in that game because you kind of have to. Um, but uh, the the best part actually of uh, buying Infinite Warfare is actually that they have uh, it comes with Modern Warfare Remastered, which is the old Call of Duty Four. Um, Call of Duty Four Modern Warfare was kind of the game that turned Call of Duty into you know that household franchise that you refer to as your generic uh, FPS shooter um, that everyone and their brother has played and owns. Um, that was modern warfare it was the the best of of these games and and it's 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 back um i've played more of modern warfare remastered than i have played of the new infinite warfare you do have to buy infinite warfare to get call of duty remastered you actually have to get like the 80 dollars version of of infinite warfare to get it um if you could only pay like 20 bucks to just get modern warfare remastered i'd tell everyone to just do that because it's great um uh the biggest thing of course is i don't have a lot of map familiarity yet with either titanfall 2 or infinite warfare's maps but like going back to modern warfare was was like you know returning home because they just have such wonderful maps that i spent i i have i would have to say hundreds of hours playing on in the past um and it was it was really fun to go back and and see that with all they fixed you know it's got the newer networking protocols and matchmaking that you'd expect but it's the same maps and gameplay including some of the stuff that they removed later cuz they decided they thought was broken or whatever it's all back to the original design of the game um and uh, it includes ridiculous maps that that they decided were bad ideas like shipment i love shipment shipment's my favorite map and i used to i used to go in rooms that were like 24/7 shipment um to to set the stage here uh if you know what a shipping container looks like size of you know um shipment the entire map is about four shipping containers in length by four shipping in containers in width um and it it's um, literally it's just it's literally just it's a very small it's map, like a room small map. <laughs> it's like one room <laughs> um so it's a really small map and they put 16 v 16 on it um <laughs> shotguns and grenades you launch your grenade oh, you throw your shit. grenade and you die you throw your grenade and you die <laughs> it's hilarious um it's it's just a bunch of shipping containers strewn around this really really tiny square map um i actually played uh y- yesterday i played domination on this match <laughs> <laughs> It's great because all three points are like within grenade throwing distance of each other. It's fantastic. So, um, so the the remaster for COD Four does have multiplayer then? Yes, yes. Okay. It does. Oh, okay. Um, there is some there is some kind of funny oddities that that came out. Is um, you can actually get this, of course, through Steam, which is the the kind of the primary way of getting it. And they've also launched it through the Windows Store as a modern app. <laughs> um. But the uh, the modern app version does not include the Xbox integration that most like a lot of games these days. You can get them with Xbox integration through the Windows Store, and it's just like buying the Xbox game. You play it on Xbox if you have it on Windows, and vice versa. This is not that. It does not have any Xbox integration, and also the Windows Store version does not have crossplay with the Steam version multiplayer. So 
if you buy the Windows Store version, you can only play with other people who bought it on the Windows Store, which is really, really niche. You know, it's actually cheaper to buy it that way. They have a temporary 20% discount um, on buying it through the Windows Store. And so if you were just going to play it for the single player, it's not a bad idea. But if you want multiplayer, almost everybody and their brother is going to have the Steam version if you're on PC. So that's a that sounds really underhanded. <laughs> yeah, well, it's really weird because, um, you know, Microsoft has even confirmed that they're not, you know, they have no problem with cross-play in and outside of the Windows Store version and that there's no technical reason for it. It's just a decision that Activision clearly made. And I, I would assume that Activision decided that there was some reason they couldn't couldn't guarantee that the gameplay experience would be exactly the same between the two. So they decided to keep the, uh, you know, the, the game room separate. Which is unfortunate because they're already talking about, um, you know, because you have Modern Warfare Remastered and Infinite Warfare being released together. Some, you know, there's some people are playing Infinite Warfare multiplayer. Some people are playing Modern Warfare Remastered multiplayer. And now both of those sets of, of players are split between the Steam version and the Windows Store version. Not to mention, of course, the people who buy it on Xbox One and PS4. So there's there's a lot of split there's, there's player a lot base. Of split player base that's bad that's just poor design on, on marketing or, or at least how they structured I mean, it because you don't I mean, split your player base that I, much but on the other side stupid but on reasons. the other side it is call of duty they do have the numbers that they can that they can handle that much splitting um at least True. initially um, it's just what's going to happen is it's going to be it's going to be much sooner that many of those games become uh hard to find good ma- matchmaking teams for because once it starts once the initial rush starts dying down um that splitting will start to hurt a lot more. Mm-hmm. So I've got one question about Infinite Warfare. And, and back when the E3 trailer came out, and I didn't know it was Infinite Warfare as the trailer was playing, I was like, oh, wow, that looks really cool. Like, this is really badass. And then it was like, you know, Call of Duty. I was like, oh, wow, okay. Is the gameplay at all in any way um, like that trailer? Or is the trailer, you know, typical scripted, misleading gameplay well, trailer? The problem is I haven't tried single player yet. Um, and, okay, but, and I think but, that's a lot of what it's, you're it's looking certainly at. Not, sure, but it's certainly not the multiplayers like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, when you see that kind of very clearly scripted stuff, that's that's their single player. Um, that uh, that's what I figured. It just we had there was a lot of people that were coming out like, oh wow, look, it's it's gonna be you know the successor to Dust, and it's gonna be this space internal multiplayer combat. I'm like, ah, guys, I think that's a single player, and you know there was there was much complaining. I mean, but, it's they're very I mean, spacey yeah. looking maps, but they're still maps. Yeah, you know, they're still at the end of the day, and it's still standard ish maps. Um, because you can't do that sort of scripted event stuff on uh, on multiplayer very well. Is the war no, truly infinite? I I mean, <laughs> there's going to be a point that nobody plays the game anymore, and then I think it kind of ends. But yeah, I mean, I I am actually this is one of the few Call of Duty games I actually really really want to play the single player on because it looks like you know Mass Effect ish, um, you know, and, and it's I guess there was an article I think I think it was a Kotaku article saying that uh, Infinite Warfare was like a lot more sci-fi than they expected it to be. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, it it, it, it certainly is a, a setting that I I gravitated to. I, I like sci-fi games. It was just you know, getting that that mix of, of gameplay that you kind of would see and and want is is always difficult. So I, I was kind of curious if if I was, the trailer at all was, was indicative of multiplayer or if it was single player or you that, know. that's that's single player. Um, and uh, you know, I'm I'm a little sad because I I went and bought I bought Titanfall two, which is you know sixty bucks, and then I bought. Uh, um, you know, for for infinite warfare, you want if you want 
the remastered Modern Warfare, you have to pay an additional 20 bucks, up to 80 And if you want the season pass, um, it's 100 and I went ahead and did it, because it's Call of Duty, and you really can't escape the fact that everybody goes and plays the DLC later. Plays the DLC later. Yeah. Um, so, I spent $100 on Infinite Warfare, I spent $60 on Titanfall 2. I'm $160 down in gaming for, like, the month of November at this point, and then Overwatch fixed my butt hurt with it. <laughs> I'm so sorry that you spent hundred that yeah. you spent a hundred dollars on fucking Call of Duty, bro. I know, but so so I was like, I seriously, I went on the forums. I'm like, thank you for listening, but I wish you could have done it before I spent hundred and sixty dollars on other games. <laughs> hey, so does uh, zombies come with uh, Infinite Warfare yes. already in it, or is it like a uh, shit? What was the word? I I saw it. It's in the. I don't like know. Advanced if... Warfare, not Advanced Warfare. I don't know if you need additional purchases to get it, because I just got additional purchases outright. Okay. But um, if I went to Steam, hold on just a moment. Because Advanced Warfare did that stupid shit um, where you didn't get zombies in the base game. You had to buy the season pass or whatever, which was kind of dumb. I have honestly never, ever played a Call of Duty zombie mode. I've never done it. Oh, God, dude, you gotta go play Black Ops (laughs) 1 zombies. The best fucking zombies ever. But but anyways, um, according to Steam, I have Call of Duty Infinite Warfare Zombies and the Call of Duty Infinite Warfare Zombies in Spaceland pack. <sighs> um, I and, and so I do and apparently, have these, apparently have these things. Space zombies, infinite space zombies. Damn me! You're gonna buy it now, aren't you? No, no, <laughs> I don't have money. More fucking money to buy Call of Duty, and really, I don't like really, Call of Duty. Okay, I talk about how I play Call of Duty. I play Call of Duty with one person. Okay, I, I, I I've been I'm off. Not, I've been away no. from Call of Duty for like what four or five years. How, when did Modern Warfare Three come out? Twenty eleven. Yeah, okay. That's the last time I played Call of Duty. So, I mean, this is this has been a long time for me. And I really hope they do they that the next Call of Duty game is some game I don't give a crud about. Because I hate giving I, I hate, I hate giving thing. Activision money. I That's really thing, loathe though. giving How much Activision further money. Further than than space can you go? Like oh, time. Like, it's gonna be a time travel Call of Duty game. Oh god. Because Because at some point, bro, you're gonna be like you might as well just make the next fucking Destiny game, right? Well, they're gonna. What they'll do is the. I mean, they'll probably. They're probably just pushing this out a little further, but they're probably gonna do what Battlefield just did and go like, "All right, we'll go back to the oh, beginning again, God. start over." Oh, God damn it! In the, in the uh, next Call of Duty game, the Call game will be played. One. Will be played in five dimensions. Three of them will be <laughs> played by one team. The other three, three uh, in the other direction, will be played direction. by the other, and they'll have one overlapping. Uh, through which play one dimension of player interaction will project, confusing the shit out of everybody. No, at least they're it'll, it'll all be VR and cause off launch the entire time. <laughs> like there will be, like there'll be a one dimensional. So what does what does that even look like? Shit. But so um. Anyways, the, the, the thing four that I, and three and three. The thing that I wanted to to bring up um kind of as a as a as a a little bit of a segue is uh you know the interesting thing about playing call of duty again is um that their game modes are they they do not they do not mess around with this they do two phases on every game because um you know their maps are in fact asymmetrical they're they're relatively similar they're gen- somewhat they're somewhat symmetrical but they are different sides and even in the case of um 
like domination where the spawn points do rotate throughout the game based on what points you control they still always have a half time where they switch where they switch your starting side um pretty much every call of duty game has a half time for that purpose um so that's that's kind of interesting as the way they counter it whereas you know in dust for example you would start on one side the other team would start on the other side and a lot of times one side did have a defined advantage or use for, at, at least for certain classes. Manus Peaks and Sniping. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that is a good segue to kind of our, our main topic here of, you know, you often see, for example, in MOBA style games where it's it's very symmetrical, it's intentionally symmetrical, and it's meant to be fair on both sides. It's not really attack and defense, it's you skirmishing over a central point. Um, and then you have games like Dust, where your Skirmish 2.0 specifically, where it wasn't symmetrical. Um, like like you said, there there were sides that had an advantage, but there was still no true attack or defense. You were basically you had you know four or five points scattered about in the middle of the map, and you would run around and, and fight over them. That was kind of the end of it. There was no true attacker and defender. And so something that I kind of want to talk about today is game modes, um, specifically FPS games that feature asymmetrical maps and specifically ones that are defined as attack and defense. And, uh, you know, this is obviously something that we, we brought Lether in because he can corroborate my, my experiences with a game that got me into shooting in the first place, uh, which was MAG back on the PS3. And the MAG was, the MAG was extremely focused around um, asymmetrical gameplay. Everything was attack or defense. And, you know, it was very well defined that you were trying to push your way up the field and capture points and there was checkpoints kind of that you would work your way up until you finally got to the end goal and you'd fight for this you know big epic finish and it's something that we had back in dust during skirmish 1.0 that was it was very appealing to me i came into the beta and i was like oh wow this is this is much like uh uh, sabotage from mag it was you go and you kind of capture two points or in dust it was the defense relays and you'd blow them up with charges or you blow them up the tank and then that would kind of unlock the second stage of the fight where you would go and attack the uh, structure and it was either you know biomass or the communications lab and it was you know, it was good it, that, that that's what i really liked about it and they came out with um kind of like a skirmish like 1.5 where it kind of had the mcc moving around and there's other stuff you could do it was still you know it was still progressive it was you were you were working your way down the field trying to capture spawn points and, and move your way to the end goal and then they released skirmish 2.0 which like i said before was really not attack or defense anymore it was just two sides skirmishing over you know a, a, a spray of, of points in the middle and it didn't feel the same way and i think that was actually probably one of the uh biggest negative changes they made to the game and it was a feature that a lot of players were not happy with there was always a constant pull to go back to uh, skirmish 1.0 or that progressive game mode so i, I kind of wanted to talk about you know that sort of game style and you know your experiences in it like i know zell plays a lot of overwatch overwatch has a game mode like that where you have to protect the payload and move it down the field and and whatnot and, and it's kind of the difficulties that you've experienced in game modes like that and ways that developers and games have gotten around those problems or ways that they haven't and then just kind of do a kind of a deep dive or a theory craft on how do you do a progressive game mode correctly in a way that is fun and balanced for the most part and, and engaging so um 
you know, like I said, I'll reference Mag again. That Mag had a lot of game modes, and there's only one that wasn't tr- wasn't actually progressive, and then that was kind of the, the base starter game mode. You would you you'd play around with to kind of get your get your your feet wet, but that wasn't what you're meant to do. And so, I mean, like Lether, what do you think was probably one of the more successful iterations of, of the progressive game mode in Mag, and and you know what what certain maps worked really well, and in what specific game modes? Like, what is your opinion on one that actually was very successful at achieving that? So um, I think that there were both, uh, there are two game modes particularly that I think did better uh, than the other two, especially. There was in fact a game mode that had three teams at one time that was, um, it could be kind of fun to play, but it was sort of garbage from a balance perspective because you didn't have any control over like how the third team acted. So it was a constant like, there's a constant ring around the rosy of this team's winning. Let's kill them. Oh no, someone else is winning. Let's kill them. We're winning. Defend the thing, <laughs> um, which wasn't particularly tactically interesting, um, and the way the maps were designed wasn't particularly interesting as well. But the um, the two that I think were pretty successful were sabotage, which Pokey mentioned earlier, and acquisition. Um, and there were some particular maps. In, in both cases that I think were uh, especially good at that. I'm trying to, to think about which was the best for acquisition, but for uh, Sabotage, there was a particular map, um, which I believe was Valor's in that game, uh, that I think was a, that I an especially it. well-designed Sabotage map. And as, as Pokey was saying, the, the game mode is you have two points initially that are open for the attackers to attack uh, and the defenders are trying to keep them off these points and you have to capture both simultaneously in order to progress the game. Um, This is already a pretty strong point where you have uh, a need to split up your team but there's a there's a little bit of potential for tactical uh, reallocation now, in MAG, there wasn't a ton of that. Um, I'll, I'll say that the game in general suffered from a kind of lack of options in that regard, but maybe I'll, I'll mention that later because it was an overall problem. Um, in Acquisition, I, I think that there was... Um, let's see. I think Valor probably had the better map for that as well, actually, in terms of balance. And in Acquisition, it was Capture the Flag, but the flag was a vehicle... Um, that the attacking team had to first um, essentially get out of a crate. They were forced to go hack a panel in the back lines of the defender's um, side to to get access to this vehicle. And then they, uh, once having it in their possession, needed to drive it to the to the uh, attacking side of the map again. And it's it's pretty basic. It's capture the flag, but uh, they made it multi-stage by having a bunker line, which was a kind of first stage for the defenders, where they had these hardened structures and gates and and various other objectives that you had to push through as an attacker in order to push the defenders' spawns back, to push their uh, infrastructure back to where the vehicle was. And and the positive thing about um, both of these modes is that they, they had some kind of very defined patterns for play, but you could, uh, you could change what you were doing and in a tactical way in order to to try to get an advantage and they also um just like overwatch does introduce this idea in their asymmetric gameplay of having 
areas of the map that are easier for the attackers or defenders at a particular stage. So that particular Valor map, um, the first stage was much better for the um, attackers relative to the second stage. The second stage was a single objective that you had to capture. And so the entire defending team would be concentrated in essentially a heavily fortified building with two spawn points nearby. Um, and the attacking team would also have a relatively nearby spawn point that they just have to try to try to get their way in. So this created a gameplay arc where you were first having a hard time defending and then maybe an easier time defending. And as an attacker, you know, if you won, you felt fantastic. And as a defender, you often could as well. So I guess those are the positives. Um, I maybe bounce to something else and I can talk about some of the negatives that Mag had. <laughs> yeah, there were a few. <laughs> But, um, Sarah, you were, you were real well acquainted with Overwatch, so I, I know there was an episode of, say, Extra Credits that, that analyzed Overwatch pretty well, so I'd be interested to hear what you, your thoughts are on, uh, on their uh, vehicle mode. I don't know why the name escapes me offhand, but... Um, well, I mean, they don't... Like, Overwatch doesn't really have modes in the sense that... I mean, they there are technically three different modes, and there are... Th- technically names for them but there's no way to queue for them individually they're they're each each map has a particular way that it works so it's not that you know you have a map and then there's a bunch of you know a couple different modes that could be played on the map it's that map is designed for that game mode alone um so there are a couple modes where you escort a payload um there's a cut co- i mean there's a couple maps where you escort a payload there's a couple maps where you um capture points and there's a couple modes where you like capture a point and then escort a payload. There's there's like kind of a half and half there. Um, and there's some there there's some that some of the capture point ones are like straight in the middle where there's no attack defend. Um, so what they usually do is um, probably most of them are attack defend. Um, and in quick play they do just you know a match is you know one side's attack one side's defense. Um, <clears throat> And in the case of the non-attack defend, where there's a, a capture point in the middle, um, they do a best of three, and they're they're you know kind of three quick matches over you know fighting over one point, um, so they do best of three for that. Um, but in competitive is where they they have to make a big point to make sure that it's balanced, super balanced and fair. Um, so in competitive, um, they will always pair um, an attack defend with a you know a, a side switch. Um, for another round and then usually um if there's a tie at that point after they they will actually go around again and give everyone another attack defend um with a limited time pool based on how much time they had left in the fur the the first set of rounds um but that's fairly easy to draw on to, to get a draw on because you don't have a lot of time for the second run through and and it's pretty easy to defend the first point long enough for both sides to to kind of cancel that out um but the big thing is though is that they do in for competitive always pair an attack and defend together um and then for their for their center capture point games in competitive um instead of best of three they do best of five um and and so they just kind of extend the competitive matches out a little bit longer to guarantee that there's there's you know more balance and, and chance for a comeback well and the side switching is actually um 
it's a decent way to deal with an issue that Mag would suffer from for quite a while. Is that in, in Mag you actually were part of one of the three factions, and like like Overwatch, the map was designed for a specific game mode. And so if you had your your Valor map and you were a Valor, you would always defend that map. Which, you know, it, it seemed nice in concept. That, that the could issue suck, was yeah. is that, that suck, yeah. it, it, if you had a bad map where it was harder to defend, you would be pissed off at the end because you're like, well, crap, I lost because the map isn't balanced properly. Which, you know, it would happen. And they, they eventually opened it up where any any faction could defend or attack any map, and, and that worked better. But with the side switch, side switching that, that helps in that you always have an opportunity to enjoy a potential uh, advantage that you would not have with a single run of the yeah. map, which yeah, which is nice. You have to do the side switch. Actually, the um, if you remember, because we talked about it on the show when they the last time they announced a big map for Overwatch, it was uh, Eichenwald, which was the the um, uh, it's kind of the German castle map. Um, and uh, suffice to say when that came out the the immediate first feedback was that it was way too easy to defend um and i i think they may have tweaked it a little bit but it 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 still does feel stronger to be on the defense side of things um so you know when when the map first came out and you were trying it everyone you know you'd you'd lose on an attack and be like well you know that's just what happens because this map is broken you know um and so that's why, yeah, side switching guarantees that if you're, you know, if you're, if you're in a map, a match that's like competitive in Overwatch where they will do a side switch at halftime, you're guaranteed to have the same advantage or disadvantage as the other side did on the other round. I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting um, environment. And so this might be the good point to mention. Also, another thing that I think you can observe in Mag's asymmetric uh, map design and game mode design which is like so the advantage of asymmetric maps is um is that you can create this this gameplay that is is kind of different every every time you play on a different side of the map um certainly it creates an a, an interesting dynamic where one team is not uh trying to do exactly the same thing as the other team but if it also makes it's very difficult to balance. If you make a perfectly symmetric map, then you only have to kind of balance for perfectly symmetric gameplay, which, um, you know, up to having features that support your kind of in-game character roles, it isn't quite as difficult to tweak into the correct place because, at worst, both teams have the same advantages and disadvantages. Um, in MAG, one of the things that, that would end up being unfortunate is they had very large player counts. And so they had these asymmetric uh, game modes with very large player counts, which is kind of distinctive from, uh, from say, Overwatch and a lot of other games. But um, it the way that they had to design it so that you had a, a definitive kind of phase structure where you know, there was a first phase and the defenders were defending a bunker line. And then there was a next phase that after you push past that, they were defending something further back. Is They had to make it kind of difficult to have alternative tactics in the game. Um, we, we used to joke in uh, KQ, which was my, my clan and MAG as well, um, that you know uh, doing well in MAG was a matter of getting everyone to go left or everyone to go right. And if left and didn't work, left didn't then work. you switched to right. Um, because at the end of the day, the, the maps, uh, 
they were this, this one line of defense for the defenders. And and so, you know, your best bet as an attacker was to pull all the spawns you could into the closest proximity to one or the other of the sides, and all the spawn points for the farthest away team on the defenders were were as far away as possible. <laughs> so I guess the, the overall point, the lesson to take away from that, is that on the one hand, you want to create um, a mode where you're controlling sort of the ebb and flow of the battle, so that there are high points and low points for each team as you're playing this asymmetric game mode. But uh, you, you also want to make it so that there are enough alternative strategies that playing the game more than a month is fun. <laughs> Well, in, you are you are very correct, and I think that in in sabotage in particular, that that reared its head the worst. I felt that in acquisition it was handled a little bit better because there was a lot of different things you could do besides just push the bunkers, um, and in maybe not to enough of an extent that it probably should have been, but you could flank and, and sneak around, and you could get behind the line and disrupt their infrastructure from behind the bunker line, and that could in fact cascade to help break that bunker line and it gave opportunities for for different roles to kind of get in there and, and almost like a sapper role of sorts where you can move around and, and be disruptive or you know scan the enemy movements from from behind and kind of see what's going on and i, I think that that actually helped disperse the action a little bit to to enough to enough to some where you weren't losing player density in the fights. I mean, you don't want to be running around for hours trying to find someone to kill, but at the same time it, it gave opportunities that pulled players away from the the points of interest that, that you typically would see with the main objectives where, you know, attackers would funnel in and defenders would, would hunker down and, and try to defend. And in a lot of times it would kind of become a slugfest where it's just whoever managed to, to brute force their way in uh, would, would take the point. This was mitigated slightly by the fact that you had to control both points at the same time. So you'd often see where you would need to coordinate the entire team to make the push at the same time in order to capture both at the same time. Because usually if you took a point, the defenders were in a position such that they could take it back probably easier than you took it. So it was kind of a, a race against time to you know, make sure you got both of it at the same time. And I think that helped to, to an extent. But um, back to my prior point, it, it, it was good that there were other ways that you could manipulate the battle in a sense that you could influence what was going on with the main objective, but you didn't actually have to be there. And that, that allowed for a variety of gameplay. And you could, you could go around and do different things and try different roles. And they probably didn't have the variety it needed to really shine in MAG, but I think that the structure was there to make it happen. So uh, it worked well for, for acquisition in, in that, ex that, that extent. And also with acquisition again, with the progressive game mode, there were distinctive stages where you had to blow the gate, get in the gate, take out the bunker, and then you could you know get your main forces in. I think there was even a secondary gate you had to get through or some barricades. Uh, it's a triple A battery usually. Uh, domination okay. sometimes had a. Oh, where did they have those barricades? I believe it was on domination maps that they had those um, for certain. Oh no, you're right. There were barricades in there front of the actual front of the. Yeah actual uh, container for the um for the vehicle but those were usually a lot easier to blow up um just because the right and you had momentum at that point so you could, you could you could you know usually punch through that pretty easily but the point i'm making is that while your team was advancing uh, up the field and, and you were moving deeper and deeper towards the enemy spawn they could do usually one of two things or one of three things really um they could 
they, they are very close at that point. So you're, you're now moving from a position where the attackers have the advantage. Um, as they're pushing up, the defenders are kind of scrambling to regroup. Um, the attackers hit the, the, the capture point to get the vehicle out. But the defenders are now respawning, and they're responding more or less right next to where the attackers are trying to capture this. So now the attackers are are facing an uphill battle of trying to get this vehicle out, which was destroyable by, destroyable, by the way. You, the defenders could destroy the vehicle if it was captured to prevent it from being taken. And so they would, you, you could push back and defend that point, or you could go back and, and kind of sneak around again, flank around the advancing enemy troops and, and start repairing your infrastructure, like your, your AAA battery, which would allow, which was, if you repaired that, it would prevent the enemy attacking team from uh, parrot dropping in. So that would remove their forward spawn. So that would give you an advantage. You could go in and try to repair your bunkers from the front line, which was actually pretty critical. Um, for, for, for defending once the, that line fell. If you get that line back up and fully functional, it could effectively restart the match and enforce the attackers back to the starting point because if they can't pair drop in and your bunkers are up, they pretty much have to get past them again. Um, but one really important mechanic in acquisition in particular is that you had to extract the vehicle. That was the whole point, is that we have to get two vehicles out um, and then we you win the match if you can extract them. The thing is, is that those gates that you blew up and those barricades you blew up to get to that point, the enemy or the defending team can actually go back and repair those. So if you aren't paying attention and having your attacking forces sweeping back to check to make sure this infrastructure is still down, you may run into a situation where you're driving out with the vehicle and suddenly you hit a gate that you cannot break open. You, you have to get out of the vehicle to plant charges, wait for the charges to get all, go off, to open the gate so you can get out. And if you didn't maintain that, you would actually usually lose the vehicle because there wasn't enough room to, to kind of you know, kite them around and run away. You pretty much had to take it from a straight shot from capture to extraction. And I think this is important because it gave defenders multiple options and multiple things that they had to do in order to kind of turn this thing around. I mean, they could, again, hunker down and just defend the capture point, but that was kind of risky because if, if they happen to get the vehicle out, you're on foot, you're going to really struggle to catch up to them to, to stop it. So it, it gave opportunity, and these secondary objectives allowed defenders to almost reverse the flow of the the, the stages and reset the game if they were capable of doing that. And it, it, it happened sometimes and sometimes it didn't, but it gave them that opportunity. And, and with that came... Uh, quite a bit of, of variety in the gameplay, which, you know, if it worked, was was really good. And obviously, there were some some design issues where it didn't always work. In some maps, it was harder to do, but it did lead for some some pretty fun moments where the attackers think they're home free, and you repair the gate seconds before they get there, and now they're screwed because there's a repaired bunker shooting at the the vehicle, and now it it, it blows up. And, and that sort of thing is fun. Those moments make the game mode fun because. You know, there's different things you can do to turn it around um, besides just hunker down. Now, Sabotage had the issue of once the first two points fell, it was to the third point where both sides converged and that was it. There was no way to reverse it. And, you know, th that that was a little more simplistic and easier to understand, um, which made it good for more beginner game mode. But it did kind of lack some of the, the more intrigue and in, in, uh, variation in the gameplay, which, you know, could be good or bad. I mean, sometimes you just want to have a simple match and, and that's fine. But if you wanted some of the more complicated stuff, you had to go to the acquisition or even the domination, which domination was much harder to balance, but it kind of incorporated a lot of the uh, lower level game modes and kind of how those mechanics worked and, and combined them into a much larger scale. And that was, of course, the, the big 
uh, 256-player battle. But, you know, that, again, that really kind of burned down into kind of a pseudo-sabotage that had more than two stages, and there was four of these matches going on in the same map. So, you know, it's probably not the best example. I think the smaller ones are probably a a more clear example of how this tends to work um, as a game. Yeah, I mean, Acquisition, I think, was probably... I, I didn't mention... It's surprising because Domination, the 256-player game mode in MAG, was its flagship game mode, and it, it was decent. It just... There's a lot of map dependency, and as, as Pokey points out, uh, the way the developer Zipper kind of dealt with both the hardware and uh, design issues with having so many people on a map was that they split the maps up into... Um, multiple instances, usually 32 versus 32 instances of essentially the same thing over and over. And there was very little, um, you could usually walk to the different sides of the map, but not directly. You usually had to take a fairly indirect route, and it was very hard to put spawn points there. That kind of brings me up to a point about asymmetric map design generally that I think is really interesting. A lot of this in FPS games, um, even in, in games like Overwatch, but especially in large-scale games like like both MAG and the Battlefield games actually experience a lot of this as well, um, are spawn points, right? Um, spawn points really craft the way you play through a level in an FPS game. And the kind of proximity and reliability of spawn points, uh, the proximity to secondary and, and primary objectives um, and to each other, and, and the kind of accessibility. I think these are all factors that are exceedingly important to consider when you're looking at your asymmetric gameplay. Um, this is something that Dust really lacked. And actually, um, Mag in some cases did a little bit better, but, but wasn't perfect on either. Um, because you don't have the freedom in a larger game, especially if you want it to be tactically dynamic, to do what Overwatch does and just say, your team spawn is here. Um, because if 32 people are running out of a, you know, doorway, then it's very easy to camp people down. Whereas in, in Overwatch, you can reliably play something pretty well defended, um, near someone's back lines, a team's back lines in asymmetric map. And, uh, the, uh, you don't really run the risk of making it too protected because there aren't enough players, right? You need everybody on the battlefield constantly, and yada yada yada. So it's it's a really interesting dynamic. Um, Dust utterly failed at this. Um, I think uh, the CRUs weren't particularly good in terms of spawn protection or reliability. They're really easy to hack. Um, there was no kind of semi-hardened APC type spawn point, and the way we compensated for all of that was drop up links, um, which were like this Band-Aid patch that were terrible for the game. Um, I, I mention it, it, it's really interesting to see how spawning crafts the experience. It, you'd think that it wasn't as important as it is. I mean, you know it's important, but e- even something as simple, like I said, of having like the attackers in MAG able to change the side of the, the defender's defense line on which they have spawn points, the attackers are able to do that. The defenders are not able to change that. And because of that, like the game com- almost completely devolves into go left and go right. <laughs> like, anyway. 
Yeah, because you'd effectively be forced to defend against thirty-two people with sixteen, um, and it, it could it could delve into a real issue. And and often it would kind of turn into you go left or right, you take that point, and then you sweep across the map laterally to take the other point, which is you know again defended by sixteen people um, before the other team has time to regroup and recapture the first point, which would allow you to then advance to the next game mode, which or the next stage of the game, which it became a pretty standard tactic for organized play as you would usually get through the first stage quickly if it worked and it tended to work pretty well. And I think, you know, maybe forcing the spawns would, would probably do a lot of good in this sort of thing. And I think that's, like you said, you, you don't think so much about spawning necessarily in an early stage of game development, but for Dust is a perfect example of this. You have the uplink and the uplink completely destroys all semblance of, of controlled spawns. And it, it, it basically made it impossible to really properly balance a map um, around kind of an attacker-defender standpoint, because it would, it would in fact, unbalance it, where you'd have, you know, the, and everyone who played PC knew this, and it, you'd see it leech into, you know, pub matches as well. But you get into the, into the main structure, and you'd basically put, you know, 100 uplinks up on top of the building, and that was the end of it, because the attackers, at this point, as we'll call them, the people that don't hold the middle had to get in, but they had no real way of effectively clearing your spawn point. There was no bunker to blow up. It wasn't defined. It was nebulous and, and all over the place, which basically made it that you had to more or less brute force your way in and then try to set up your own uplinks to counter it. Like it was, you had to almost flip the attacker defender role, and, and it was just messy. And it's largely what kind of killed PC for me, is I just I didn't like dealing with the fact that basically whoever got to the rooftop first would win the match because they would establish, you know, dominance in terms of where they could spawn. And once they had that, you, you really couldn't reverse it. And I think that reversibility is is key if you're gonna go for a more nebulous two-sided fight like that. But if you're gonna go with a progressive game mode, I think that the spawning is critical. And in in many ways, if uplinks are going to exist, I think that they need to be drastically tied to how CRUs work because CRUs are, are placed. They are your bunkers in, in effect. They are where you're going to be spawning and in what the enemy wants to destroy or disrupt to, you know, advance forward. And if you're going to have the ability to spread out and, you know, deploy uplinks in a way that allows you to control where you're going to be spawning, I think it still needs to be limited by the CRU's location. And I think early in the beta, there was actually um, a test uplink, which never made it into the real game, but the, the little flavor text on it basically said that the spawn speed on that uplink was determined by its uh, relative distance to the nearest CRU. So if it was close to a CRU, it would spawn you quickly, but if it was very far away, it would you know, take quite a bit longer. So at that point, it becomes the spawning with the CRUs is quite critical because if defenders want to maintain their strong uplinks, they need to maintain the CRUs in the base because if the CRU is destroyed or if it's captured, all of their uplinks are effectively rendered useless or significantly less effective. And that kind of gives, you know, almost kind of a, a stage of play where if the attackers can come in, if we can take the CRU, we now have a hard point to spawn on, and it also allows us to, you know, deploy uplinks that are going to have very quick spawn times, 
or we can destroy it and screw both people over where no one gets a good spawn raid and they they're forced to you know run from their their home line back or at least deal with you know much longer uh spawn times on on the uplinks and i i think that this is critical for regardless of how you know gameplay in nova is structured i i think that you know the ability to control the spawn and more importantly make it reversible and manipulatable you can you know manipulate it better other than just sweep through and destroy every uplink because that just it doesn't work in practice and we've, we've all seen it that it yes it's possible but it's certainly not the norm by a long shot and it, it does ruin the gameplay because it it totally throws off the balance of, of how the maps are designed and I, I don't think it's a good thing for the game so i, I think that like Lether said you don't think about it but something like an uplink can drastically change the meta of a game in a way that could be really, really bad if you aren't careful. Um, it is obviously something that was completely devoid from mag. I tend to, to, to lend this, to lead, I tend to lean towards the fact that I don't think they should even be in the game. Um, but if they are, they, they should probably follow a model um, kind of as I described. And I mean, it's interesting to see the way both Battlefield and mag Another aspect of asymmetric gameplay that they both sort of solve in different ways, especially with large player counts, is how do you how do you allow um, attacking teams, particularly but teams more generically, to build momentum on the map? People do a lot of dying in FPS games, um, clearly, right? Um, so that that's why the spawn points tend to be so important, and. Runtime is really significant for whether you can uh, whether you can kind of continue to project force at a particular location. FPS game. Um, so it, in Battlefield, their solution has pretty generically been for the last few iterations of, of Battlefield to let you spawn on any of your squad mates. Um, and and what this means is that you can't kill a push by an enemy team except by mounting a significant defense, right? Like if if you have 10 people coming up at, you know, coming up or down or whatever a hill towards you, um you can't just pick off pick them off one by one. You have to kind of pick off pockets enough of them that they can't spawn anymore. Mag had the same kind of solution except they didn't let you spawn on your teammates. Um they had a very very um nice resurrection mechanic when i say nice i mean kind of lax so they they essentially everyone in the game had a healing gun and pretty much everybody as soon as you leveled into it which was relatively quickly um could revive anybody else as long as they hadn't been intentionally bled out by the enemy team um this is sort of similar to dust except that the animation on the gun was really fast and everyone had one as opposed to just logistics people. And it's interesting how this changed the game because it meant that you couldn't just stop an attack or even a, a defensive um, a, a defensive hold. You couldn't stop either of these by picking people off one by one, especially if they were moderately close to a spawn point. I'm not saying that either of those are perfect solutions. Uh, certainly the battlefield solution feels really arcadey and doesn't you know really gel with say a, an eve universe feel but i think something to consider if you're if you're thinking of any large-scale combat game is how do you make it so that when people uh devote resources to an attack it, there's some kind of guarantee that sure you can you can get outplayed and you can lose 
definitely, but that it's it's harder than sort of mere luck on a couple of explosions or something to just have your entire push wiped out. Well, and this is actually pretty important for the fun factor in that in literature, for example, there's, or, or even just in media, for example, you there's a, a certain curve you want to follow of, of excitement and dips, and, and it kind of builds up to, you know, you have these points of high interest. And in effect, you, you kind of want your average gameplay and the way maps play out, how matches play out, to kind of follow this this idealistic interest curve. Um, and the problem is, is that if you have it where you can wipe out an attacking squad really easily, um, as Leith pointed out, by just kind of picking them off one by one, because their ability to come back um, is requires a, a long you know, a long run, it, it kind of causes these unnatural dips in the interest curve. And it, it ends up being uh, either very boring for the attackers because, or for the defenders because they, they pick up the squad and then they kind of sit there and, and wait for them to come back. Um, and as for the attackers, it's frustrating because you go and you get wiped out and it's like, well, shit, now it's another 45, 60 seconds before I get back to the action. And Mag, in a sense, was to an extreme, I think, in the ability to revive. Because you could basically revive, there's basically no animation whatsoever. If you're quick with, with the controls, you can pretty much shoot, and then between bullets, pretty much flip the, the medigon or get someone back up. And they were instantly able to do something, and usually what happens, they would pull out their medgun, heal someone else, and revive them. So one person could revive, in a, effectively in a chain, like, 30 people if, if it worked out that way um, even though there was a cooldown on the gun because you, the person you would revive would have that ability so you more or less had to completely obliterate the entire squad um, without allowing them time to revive each other for it to you know stop the, the push and while this was a little ridiculous in some cases and, and a little frustrating because one guy could completely reverse all the work you had done, uh, as Letha pointed out, it does allow for a certain degree of momentum. And the way that the, the, the maps were designed, and this is where map design is really quite critical, is that when you have points of interest where you are going to encourage the majority of the battle to take place in a certain area. And granted, like I said, there are secondary objectives that you could run around and, and flank and do, and, and those are important. I think those are, are definitely a game mechanic that I like. But in terms of points of interest, you would almost kind of have this this charging bull in the sense of, of players that are attacking. Once they break that first line and the defenders are scattered and trying to regroup while the attackers are moving forward, it was very difficult to stop them. But usually the next thing they had to do to progress the game further was funnel into typically a well-defended building or, or an area where it was pretty much a kill box where if the defenders knew what they were doing, they would you know be able to set up and make it extremely difficult. So what would happen is that you'd have this, this very strong push and it would hit and it would cause a, a, a moment of, of really high interest, high chaos where there's a lot of fighting going on and it's both sides trying to eliminate each other. But again, since they're able to kind of keep their momentum, both on an attacking and defending side by reviving each other and, and spawning in, um, nearby for the defenders or, or reviving for the attackers it would it would create really intense moments and, and i think those were kind of where mag really shined because you'd have you know you could be fighting in a building non-stop for five minutes straight where it's you know this this endless firefight and things are exploding grenades are going off and you're getting incapacitated and revived and, and you might die but 
if your team has done the right thing, they've already now captured the forward spawn point, either via airdrop or a helicopter, and you can get back to the fighting. And in these hard points, um, or these choke points where the defenders had a really high advantage would kind of act as this climax of the interest where, you know, this, this momentum was fun. You were kind of steamrolling, you're pushing, then you'd hit this rock and, and you'd kind of have to either break the rock or you would fall apart. But it, it, it made it interesting and it allowed it to be um, exciting and you'd feel like you were in a war zone. There may be only 16 guys there, but it was absolute chaos and it, it lasted because that momentum was was able to be maintained throughout the fight. And I think that that is kind of your peak of the interest curve. And then that point either breaks or you get wiped out and the interest kind of dies down. And then as you reapproach and, and re-engage that point or move to the next point, it starts to go up again. And eventually as the players who start off very spaced out um, and, and domination to an extent kind of did this, um, but sabotage probably to a to a more noticeable degree is that you were very spread out when you spawned and then you would as you captured these points and, and move forward through the stages you would be pushed tighter and tighter together and, and as as Lether said the, the valor map was quite good because it was this heavily fortified building and you pretty much had to run up a staircase towards a bunch of guys with you know machine guns shooting down at you and it was very difficult to take but because all the players in the match have now been focused into a single point, you see a gradual escalation of the excitement and the interest curve of the fight. So the, the fight would get more and more exciting as it kind of ebbed and flowed up until the climax where either you were successful and were able to destroy the point or you ultimately get wiped out and the defending team lasts long enough for the match just to end. And I think that that, again, is also very critical, that you are able to maintain momentum. And that's that's something that Dust kind of struggled with because the injectors worked, but the animation was quite long. So it was extremely risky. You were disinclined to do it in the heat of the moment because you were probably going to die if you did it, which wouldn't help anybody. And so it turned into, well, you need to clear the room before you revive anyone. Well, that kind of turns into one side gets wiped out or the other. It doesn't really create that long-lasting, intense moment of combat. It's usually a, okay, you pick off these guys and the lodgies are dead, and well, okay, everyone else gets kind of ripped apart, and that's the end of it. Now let's run back to the fight for you know a minute, which isn't fun. Um, it, it's not interesting. It, it's frustrating, particularly for the attackers, and it, it leads to a lot of rage and overall not a very good game experience so i think that had it been easier to revive or had mechanics where you could spawn back with the squad quickly um may that be with like a, a personal uplink or something like that and, and I'm, I'm not really a huge fan of that because i think that kind of encourages players to hide rather than stay with the squad um i, I think probably the, the the easier revive mechanic would probably work better but regardless um i think that would have made the fights in Dust a little less skirmishy and feel more intense and, and rewarding um, at those points of interest um, in the map. Yeah, um, oh geez, that kind of leaked from my head, but I guess I, I would say, I guess this this uh, is really critical to, to these large games, is this ability to, to maintain momentum. Also because, um, I, you know, I've always been a very tactical player uh, coming out of MAG, you know, I was always the guy who was very interested in, in seeing how you could coordinate a team to uh, to do the best possible thing in a particular situation. And and that's something that I did in Dust, but the, the issue in Dust between the sort of lack of reliable and discernible spawn points for both the potential attackers and defenders, even though it was a symmetric map, 
and the the lack of kind of a momentum building uh, device it meant that when when you ask like you know five people or even say you have a 16-man team when you ask for 10 people to go attack a point right that's 10 out of six 16 of your guys they should probably be able to take that point eventually or else fight a really significant battle if it's well defended um and that's not something that would so much happen in in dust it was very much up to both um some amount of luck having to do with how you know the initial engagement went off but also um it made the game very very heavily reliant on player skill um which is not a bad thing to have some reliance on player skill by any stretch of the imagination um but it meant that just a couple guys or girls getting you know two to one kdr in in a 10 second interval right um in, instantly wipes you out because of the the lack of those two mechanics it also, I think, might not be a bad way to characterize the problem that that Mag sort of suffered, or sorry, Dust sort of suffered in public matches, um, because you know we we talked about the kind of uh, redlining in in Dust, right? The idea that everyone was uh, the way pub matches in in a skirmish would uh, finish up is everyone would be backed up to the red line on one team. One team would own everything. And and it would be almost impossible, even with like a four or five or six man team that you had brought into the match, a squad of people who are organized, it'd be very hard to have a good, good play experience after a certain point. And I think that is really, the reason why that would happen is really characterized by the inability to um, maintain any momentum, right? Um, the inability to play spawn points, the inability to maintain momentum, because what the the lack of those two things amounted to was after you were pushed back, it, there was no way you were ever going to have a fun play experience. You're never going to have a fun battle unless you got very lucky. Even even the most coordinated teams in PC, if you got pushed back, even even to say you got pa- pushed back to one out of three objectives, right? It could be really difficult to realign your personnel uh, to to do anything differently because inevitably the entire enemy team um, who are attacking or crashing down on the single point that you own. Um, you can try to send people to different places, but there are, there's no way you can really set up the spawn points very well. And if they get killed off, then you've just lost, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 clone count. Um, and everyone's back at their base spawn. And maybe this is the real way to, to look at the asymmetric gameplay um, that you can get out of modestly large player counts, which does, I mean, 16v16 isn't huge, but it's its a little bit larger than arcade style for certain, um, is, is sort of intelligent ways of building your maps and your game modes and everything else asymmetrically so that there's a good dynamic of momentum and a good selection of tactical choices for both teams so that the battle remains interesting, even in public matches if you at least have a few people together who can, you know, try to fight their way out of a particular situation. 
Yeah, and I think that a lot of that, you know, suffered from the fact that Dust was a little too straightforward in what you had to do. Um, it was difficult to, once, like you said, once you were under pressure, you pretty much had to only defend, and there was really nothing else you could do to make that pressure let up. There, there, you couldn't sweep around. You couldn't send one guy to go do something like you could Mag to. to push their spawn back to, you know, at least give you the opportunity to go in, in, in reverse what had happened. You, you were pretty much pigeonholed at that point, and your only way to hold on was to basically hunker down, and that's not going to win you the match, and it's not going to be enjoyable for you or the attacking team necessarily because the red lines are boring for everybody. Um, no one likes to stand in the middle of a field and, and look at the red line and try to shoot the guy that is stupid enough to poke his head out because he has to run across a you know 300 meter foot field. Um, and and I think that the the ability to reverse a situation like that is is quite critical. And and there's a lot of factors that go into that. And I think that the way that spawns work is one of them. The way that momentum works is one of them. I think that the secondary objectives and how those interact with the field is is important uh even things like um oic commands and mag were, were could could be critical if, if you used it at the proper time and for those of you not familiar basically the the head the head guy for the match um well even the squad leader the platoon leader and the oic they had certain commands they could issue um under certain conditions that would either help or help their team or hinder the enemy team and if you time them properly um or, or use the resources you had properly, it would, it, it could affect the battle, you know, very in a very important way. I mean, it, you kind of got this with um, with orbital strikes in Dust, uh, probably to a lesser extent, I think, because the things in Mag you could affect enemy spawn rates, um, you know, if they could use ability stuff like that, and it, it was a lot of the stuff that I think probably would have worked out a bit better had the meta evolved a bit more with Dust, but it just it wasn't there. But regardless. Um, like Luther said, I think that the it's being pushed back to a point does not create an engaging gameplay. And, and I think personally, the ability to reverse that, even if it is difficult to do, is important. And you need to be able to do it with a force that will not completely hinder your defending team in, in the case of Defender, but still... You know, you could okay, hold out for a little bit while these two guys go off and do this thing, and then that will you know help the group as a whole. I think that's pretty critical, and, and I think that's very important for, for asymmetrical gameplay. And I mean, I, I've actually talked to Ratati about this um, a little bit in the past, and he didn't specify one way or the other on, on how game modes will work in, in, in Nova and whatnot, so don't, don't take it that way that this is a confirmation or anything like that. But his comment was, well maps have to be perfectly balanced if you want a progressive game mode to work, which is true to a degree, I believe. I think that you obviously needed to have a certain degree of balance, but I think that other elements in the gameplay can help to alleviate some of those problems. Um, like I said, with like secondary objectives or, or things that add a dynamic level to the gameplay. It's not just straightforward like like Dust was, where it's Basically, you are running in, and you can defend this point, and you're going to attack this point, and you might get an orbital, which might do something. It wasn't enough. It didn't allow for enough um, tactics or enough, you know, thinking. It was mostly we're going to get entrenched, and once we're entrenched, we just pretty much have to be better at shooting than the other guy, and we're good to go. You couldn't do anything to counteract a superiorly skilled player, which. As Leather said, skill is obviously important. It should be a major factor in in the gameplay, but it shouldn't be 
the only deciding factor. And I think that when it comes down to, you know, the kind of game mode you had with Dust, it, it, it runs into that issue because there isn't much you can do besides just push the point or just defend the point there there wasn't any way to to manipulate the battle beyond that and i think that's a large reason of why we had a lot of the balance issues we did not only in competitive but also in pub matches if you had you know one squad go in the squad could could be enough of a wrecking ball that regardless of what they did they would just basically plow through everything in the area they were at and that could be enough to completely wipe out the attacking team for that point or the defending team for that point um which was obviously problematic and led to a lot of redland situations. I mean, it really—it's interesting that it also kind of exacerbated the um, the gear disparity as well in public matches um, because of yeah. these because of these sort of isolated issues. It, or I say isolated issues because of these individual issues. What it kind of amounted to was that like KDR is like always very important in FPS games. You know, if you're if you're spending more time alive than the other team is, and you're spending less time running from a spawn, you're spending more time in the place that you want to be as opposed to um, somewhere different because you were spawning. Those are all really critical tactical advantages, but in, in Dust they were kind of ratcheted up to 11 because you very much could run out of momentum real easily, and because you you know often didn't have an alternative spawn. I mean, they were somewhat mitigated, in the more competitive circumstances, but not entirely. Um, and so it's it's an interesting point that you could take a squad into a battle and say that they were all in proto gear. You know, you brought six people in, in proto who were, who were quite good. This is a common circumstance. There are a ton of pretty admirable teams out there who just make the pub game completely unplayable for the enemy team if they didn't have an equivalent force to stop them. On the flip side, there are plenty of times when I took a team of six people, um, we're all in a squad, and we weren't running proto gear, but we were running decent gear, and we were, you know, trying to be tactical. And if uh, if the team had already gotten pushed back by uh, by a squad with better gear, for instance, it, it was almost impossible to rectify the situation. So it's interesting how all these different um, pieces and parts played off of each other to create that dynamic. Um, it's one of the reasons why I think it, it was very interesting. We had a lot of, uh, a certain amount of uh, forum talk about kind of uh, one-shot solutions to various parts of the redlining problem, but I'm pretty sure it was like the entire game design. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there was a lot of design choices made early on that I think really caused an issue i mean even back in the beta you'd have prototype gear had higher base hp on top of more modules and more uh more resources and i think even then they realized that like whoa this is this is bad because i mean a guy in a proto suit would basically wipe out entire squad by himself it, it was so problematic and it if you were going to have a game where your gear level is important and you want to have kind of a uh you know, a risk reward um, curve that you're working off of. And that's, that's an entirely different topic. But if you're going to go that direction, it's critical that you make sure that the benefit is not going to become so insurmountable that a more skilled player uh, can't kill you. Um, and you, you'd run into that issue where you came to a point where someone was geared in such a way that it didn't really matter how good you were, you were going to lose. If, if the person was even half decent at what he was doing. And I think that that leads to a lot of frustration that you can have someone who decide to spend more money and they win the match because of it. 
and suffer less losses because of it because they just don't die that it it really makes it disillusioning for the person who might be quite skilled but may not have the funds to do it and feel like well my skill doesn't actually matter in this case because the gear is is so problematic and you pair that with the overall meta that those who were quite skilled would get more isk because of the way that you know planetary conquest was set up and whatnot or the fact they just ran in squads and, and wouldn't suffer many losses that the people who were very skilled would then have a lot of isks they were running the suits that were much better and at that point the problem is completely blown out of proportion where you know you're you're fighting someone who's probably you know better than you and you can't even use better gear to help counteract the skill difference because they're using top tier gear and then it all falls apart at that point and i, I think that again that's a topic for a, a different discussion but you know the, the whole cost benefit thing is it, it starts to kind of fall apart in in this kind of game as well where skill is is much more prevalent than say eve online where there there is of course a skill element involved but it is much more focused on the numbers and what kind of stuff you're using and i think it's okay in that sense like it, it worked for vehicles to an extent too where vehicles were more dependent upon the math than the skill because i mean it, it involved skill to to drive the vehicle and think tactically about where you're going to go with it and when to activate modules and that that's a good thing but you're a big hulking tank your aim isn't that important when you're shooting at a guy that you know is literally the size of a barn so at that point the money was more important than the skill and, and it, it kind of worked um for for tank interplay it fell apart for for you know infantry interplay but again that's another topic but yeah there, there was a lot of core issues that i think caused a lot of these balance issues like Luther said and it wasn't anything that was gonna fix it like removing the red line was not gonna fix it you just have people spawn camp then which is arguably worse so um you know it, it was definitely a problem and something that really needs to be carefully addressed um from the earliest stages i believe to make sure that what you're doing isn't going to cause a lot of issues later down the line we are getting a little long on time here so we're probably going to bring this in for close is there anything else on this topic you wanted to, to cover briefly Lether? i i could probably talk about it for for far too much uh much longer <laughs> so uh that's kind of why yeah that's kind of why uh. Okay, well, I declined to start with another. <laughs> start with another thing. I mean, there are a lot of games that have done this interestingly. I guess I would mention. Um, I I won't like run down every like everything and analyze it, but I'll just say like you know, Planet Side Two, Mag, Battlefield, Killzone Two had some interesting ideas in a smaller environment about this. Um, Overwatch is a very interesting game. To, to look at map design, asymmetric design for, because they, I think as this extra credits video uh, made the point, uh, Overwatch kind of like decides to take all the problems and balancing that are associated with um, with asymmetric design, and they des they took the decision to make everything essentially as problematic as possible to balance, um, and and they still pull it off, which is really fascinating. Um, so there, there's a lot of different inspiration um, for these types of mechanics, and uh, I'd be very interested to see if, if for instance, Extra Credits has a, an episode on, on spawning. Uh, I think that would be really fantastic. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a very vast topic. We could probably go on for, for ages. I, I know I could talk for quite a bit longer, but it, like, again, it is getting kind of late. So if, if this is something that people enjoy 
listening to, I, I certainly enjoyed talking about it. I wouldn't mind um, approaching a topic similar to this or, or this same topic uh, at a later date. And I, I think that would be enjoyable um, overall. But uh, yeah, is there any other topics you guys wanted to handle real quick before we go into shout outs? The, the, the game has asteroids. That is true. Um, Logic Loop did speak on uh, on Twitter, or maybe it was actually Discord. I forget. Was it Discord? It was. Day? It was Twitter. Twitter. It, was Twitter it was Twitter because Twitter. I saw it. Well, I wasn't sure if we told you about it or if you saw. No, it, but no. Regardless, a, we'll, we'll put the link in the show notes. There's the link. Yeah. So, so Logic Loop did say on Twitter that he was having fun making asteroids randomly spawn on a map. Um, I'll let your imaginations run wild with what that might be, but. You know, uh, there were some there were some cool concept images that were floating around uh, a while back. Uh, the, some many of which are featured on on Biomass.net if you want to take a look at them. Just some leaked photos, but there was one where they were basically on an asteroid or a moon of sorts, of an exterior space map, and it would be interesting to see if if there were some you know, environmental hazards or random things falling from the sky, which could be kind of interesting. That would be kind of a fun uh, game mechanic if if done well. So. We, we can confirm that not only are there consoles in Nova, there are also lifts and now asteroids. So we pretty much have the full picture now. I think we can probably speculate exactly how the game is going to be now based off of those from our, our good friend Logic Loop over at CCP. We're just very, very slowly revealing the entire game. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure that maybe in a couple of weeks we may find out if the game has guns or not. Um, it's kind of up in the air. We've we heard nothing... Good. We've heard nothing to guarantee that that guns are a thing. You know. oh, I I actually have something else I can say in regards to what Beta, but Rotati did say in Discord that suits, or at least some suits, do have a melee weapon slot. So yeah, no fun. yeah, yeah. So you know, for all you Nova Katana people out there, I I hate you, but you might get what you want. We'll see. It's really <laughs> Yeah. But anyways, um, so let's go into shout outs here. Um, so I know that, that Zell actually has one this week. So why don't you lead us off, man? Yeah. So um, I, I just wanted to state as a, as a reminder, um, if you're here in the United States, Tuesday is voting day. Um, I am not going to tell you who to vote for. It is between whether or not you should chop off your left leg or your right leg. Um, both of them are required for walking, but one of them clearly has to go. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the big thing is, is if you don't vote, you, you don't have the right to complain about it for the next four to eight years. So vote and then start complaining if you haven't already. But but go vote. All righty. And Bate, you're up. Yeah, I, I just want to echo the words of Zell. If you're an adult, you know, everybody talks about doing stuff, uh, you know, for the children. So if you want to make my future better, go fucking vote. Be a responsible adult. Let me have a good life. Um, next off, I want to give a shout out to, uh, this salsa by, uh, La Mexicana. This good salsa is their cantina salsa. This is uh, very spicy. Been munching on it with some Tostitos, uh, all show long. And I've very much enjoyed that salsa and shout out to the Florida weather. It's that time of year again, where it is no longer, uh, hot as fuck all day long. It's actually cool in the evenings, which is nice. So I got to sit outside for a little bit. And listen to Pokey and Leaker talk about maps. So that Florida was winter is fantastic. Florida winter is the best winter ever. Uh, I love it. I mean, I don't, I don't love the Florida winter because it gets really. Uh, I mean, everything bra- gets brown. Yeah, like, this is true. Like in in the UK, like they can plant grass because it doesn't get 
so hot that it'll die. They can plant grass that stays green year-round, which you can't really do here because um, it dies in the summer. I don't know. See, but the, the, the I like the fall. Is, I don't have to, no, no, I, I miss fall on um, being able to see the leaves change, but I don't have to dig anybody's car out of snow, uh, which is really cool. And uh, it is kind of cool to say, yeah, man, it was 80 degrees on Christmas Day. I don't know. I just like that. Yeah, you know climate change and whatever, but it seemed like that has been happening more often in my lifetime. Uh, yeah, weird news. I'll read Luther's shoutouts, man. Yeah, I'll also have a Tuesday-related uh, shout-out. I'd like to, to give a shout-out to the Blue Moon sitting in my refrigerator. Um, that's for Tuesday. Ooh, that's for Tuesday. You've got good taste. That's for Tuesday. Um, and, you know, by the end of the day, right leg or, or left leg notwithstanding, I will probably want to be pretty drunk. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel. We're having a bit of a, a pre-election party, so I'm I'm sure I'll I'll probably not want to go to work the next day, regardless of what happens. But we'll we'll have to see. Um, my shout out is going to be to a couple people. Uh, Lether for coming on the show. Uh, really appreciate you coming on and, and kind of doing a deep dive on map discussion. It, it helps to have someone who's knowledgeable in what I know best for for progressive maps, which, which is the game mag. So it was good to kind of talk about that and remember the good and the bad times of the past. So I, I want to thank you for coming on to the show. And we'll be glad to have you back uh, for future discussions about you know any any of these topics. Uh, and my other shout out goes to CCP Frame, who revealed on Twitter, um, excited to announce that from today I am officially part of the CCP production team here in Shanghai as a producer. Awesome things to come. So uh, Frame, who is our beloved community manager for Dust514, has been uh, promoted to the role of a producer at Shanghai. So. Whatever they may be working on there, if it's Skunjack or other projects, um, you know, I just want to wish you the best of luck, man, and congrats on your promotion. So get out there and get some stuff done. Uh, that being said, I want to thank everyone for tuning in on the show, um, either via the stream or on our website, uh, biomass.net. I know we ran pretty long, but I, I knew it was a topic that I didn't want to cut short. I, I felt kind of bad we, we cut the, the character design one short last week. So I wanted to kind of do a, at least a pretty good run at this one. I think we got a lot to talk about. So. That being said, um, vote Tuesday and everyone have a safe and a good night.